So wait, so Ron, so why why did you come to Nashville in the first place? Um, I I think you know the, the, it's a, a kind of a deep question, but so there I was uh, on my 60th birthday. Yeah. In in Los Angeles, and I had just been fired as the chief creative officer, executive VP of Virgin Records on a four-year contract where I was 11 months in. And there was, and I'm going to say this on the record because I, it's time for me to say what's on the record, what yeah. really happened. Um, my artist roster when I got shot in the head was Jelly Roll and Money Long. And that was six years ago. Yeah. Those artists were in the game, toiling, working, building, and being magnificent. And I was just ahead of my time. And I think that the the person who brought me in to run Virgin Records out of the Capitol Tower had a, a contempt for me personally and also a distaste for the way the business works, which is, as creatives, we are in the kitchen. We make the food. We, we are part of the restaurant, but we make the food. The thing that people go to do when they go to a restaurant is they eat. And the artists are the the nutrition and the, the the part of the process that people need and thrive on and and uh, and adore. So that process sometimes can be messy when you're working with young artists who are stumbling or finding their way, or a song is not all the way there but going to be there. And like sometimes you know it's a it's a it's an amazing leap of faith and a flight of fancy when you meet a young artist that turns out to be a jelly roll or whatever and just believe. Yeah. Like, I believe this is going to be the thing. Why do you believe in him? Because he's the most, you know, he's a large guy. He's kind of scary looking. I don't, maybe maybe the music was super developed back then, but I almost have a hard time believing it was. Why Why did you um, believe in no, him? No, no, I have, I actually it, have, it was. A, I have an unreleased record with Priscilla, who is Money Long and Jelly Roll. They yeah. were my roster. Um, I just thought his viewpoint, his life experience, his look, his gentle touch, his freestyle rapping was off the just off the meter. Um, the fact that he morphed and became a, he was always writing really good songs, interesting songs. But I thought I actually thought he was going to be a like a hybrid hip hop artist, more maybe like a Post Malone. I didn't necessarily see him moving into country like he did so authentically. And did you think arenas? Did you think he was going to make it to arenas? I just thought he was a star. I thought he was a that movie was a, star. Yeah. I thought like this guy's going to be a movie star and. And, um, and you know, it, it, I believe like, that's the thing, uh, about what we do, uh, is we are believers. We believe stuff like for whatever reason. Now it's, it's highly mitigated and changed now in the age of TikTok because it's not so much about believing as it is, uh, believing is part of it, but the other part is like, what, you know, what are the socials? What are the numbers? What are the, you know, what? digital numbers are being generated by an artist, which speaks more to their ability as digital self-marketers than it does as future Bob Dylans. Right. So, you know, it's a conundrum. It's a fabulous thing. It's a great time to be making music. And and uh, to go back to answer your question, which is, you know, why did I come to Nashville? Yeah, I, so you're let go I, from I had, Virgin. I, yeah, I was fired. I shot in You're the head. fired I, from Virgin. Yeah, at age 60. So like, man. Does that, does that hit you in your core or do you just say, fuck this guy? Or do you take it personally and is it, and do you, are you like, I take do you everything all, personally. I, I'm re, the person who. But do you all, do you feel like, oh my God, I'm shit. I can't believe I got fired from this job. Or do you no, say, no, screw I, that guy. No, like, no, I, well, neither one. Ne- Zach, neither. to be honest with you, like, 
because, you know, if you, in the annals of, of Ron Fair, my life story, I've been fired five times. <laughs> so that, that's not something. Does each that, one get easier? Uh, well. <laughs> or do you never care? You just you say know, on, I, on I, to the I, next I, thing. I say like, especially back then in, you know, being employed by record companies, people who were threatened or unable to uh, comprehend how I tick or my talent or whatever, you know. Um, so let's just say that I am aware that Ron Fair is an acquired taste, especially as an executive. But uh, at the same time, I am who I am. I'm not apologetic yeah. about it. And so, you know, and I've been blunt many, many times with artists and m many of them have thanked me. You know, recently Billy Porter, like an amazing, you know, mega talent across filmmaking and directing and singing and acting and dancing and this fabulous person. He said, hey, you don't remember, Ron, you passed on me. And I was like, you're right. I don't remember. Uh, yeah, you were at Chrysalis Records and you passed on me. I said, well, was I rude or blunt? He goes, no, you weren't rude, but you were very blunt. You just said, this isn't for me. I'm sorry. Thanks. But I knew where I stood as opposed to being, you know, slow faded out of most of the other offices because nobody signed me at the time. That was Billy Porter's story about me. But anyway, so there I am, father of four, living in Brentwood, California, gigantic overhead, um, shot in the head at a major label after 45 years of nonstop employment at major labels as an A&R guy and as a record producer and as a raconteur and star maker. Um, and I thought, I'm dead. I, I Fuck, what do I do? And I knew that there was more under the hood I had no interest in country music at the time, but I knew there was more under the hood in Nashville just from my being, having come here and done trips and a few projects, but that there was more under the hood, that it wasn't a hillbilly town, that it wasn't a hick thing, and that it was a music town and that real estate-wise and school-wise and lifestyle-wise that I may be able to press restart at age 60. So I gathered my young family and my incredible angel wife and we moved and started over. And I bought this studio and hung out my shingle and it's taken really the better part of five years. Now, here's what happened upon getting here. So we're remodeling our house, which was not fun. And we're remodeling the studio that we're in right now. And that was not fun. And that ended up taking a year and a half. So I'll show it to you in a minute. I have this really cool leather... Um, UK transistor radio. It's a Roberts. Yeah. And it's a mono transistor radio that picks up FM and AM. And I thought, oh, I'm just going to get, I'm going to turn this radio on while I'm doing all this remodeling shit, drywall dust all over me and the whole, you know, remodeling scenario. And I turn on the station with the biggest signal, the big 98. Comes in beautiful on that little radio. And I thought, well, shit, I'm going to listen to this country format and see what I see. Like just, soak it in without passing any judgment. And that was right in the heyday of, of uh, Dan O'Shea when I drink tequila. Mm -hmm. So the way they program uh, terrestrial top 30 in the country format is so tight that when I drink tequila was on four times an hour. Yeah. So here I am hearing this record over and over again. And I'm thinking, well, God, this, this is like, this is, is, is this country? Like, because I knew country from the records that crossed over when I was a kid. Crystal Gale, uh, you know, um, Don't Make My Brown Eyes Blue, uh, Yesterday When I Was Young, uh, Once She Gets Behind Closed Doors, Galveston, you know, all the all the big country artists that had crossed over into pop, I knew. 
Yeah. You know, I watched Hee Haw. I knew who, I knew all that stuff, but I wasn't a country music guy and, and certainly didn't, um, didn't understand it. So two things happened. One, Dan and Shay. And I'm thinking, you know, hey, this has, this has background vocals and three-part harmony and string pads. In some ways, it almost sounds like the first uh, Christina Aguilera album. Well, no, it's, a, it's like kind of like, this is Backstreet Boys. This is pop music. Yeah. But they're singing lyrical topic and have a look and a country uh, a slant to it. And if this is what country is, this is kind of like, I, this is what I used to do. These are pop records done by country artists. And it's a and it's landing in an interesting place. So around that time, I was doing a soundtrack for um, a little Christmas movie called The Star Sony Animation, and it was a project that kicked around. and And um, Sony hired me and said, "Look, we need a bunch of country singers singing Christmas songs in three weeks. Can you handle it?" So who was it? Kelsey Ballerini, Jesse James Decker, Jake Owen, um, and and a handful of others. Uh, Kirk Franklin. There was some really interesting people on that. Uh, on that soundtrack, doing Christmas tunes. So in walks Jake Owen. And of course, I have no idea who the guy is, except that I've you know listened to a few of his records. And I thought, what an interesting, authentic, fabulous dude this guy is. And he comes in here and he's singing, uh, um, What Child Is This? Which is basically green sleeves. And he's in like sub-octave because his voice is low and the we're, so we're sort of struggling with the key and he's got this gruffness to it and his voice coming over the microphone and it was like like an electrical charge running through me. Like, like I, it just, and I realized, oh, this proposition is about the authenticity of the character and what he's saying. And it's the same thing that I learned from working with Mary J. Blige when I did her biggest record of her career, Be Without You. Yeah. And I cut, you know, I produced on top of a beat that existed and I did all her vocals and the strings and, you know, we ended up um, winning three Grammys, were nominated for nine and I sold 10 million copies on a song that was number one for um, three and a half months and number one at pop for five weeks. So that's same- wasn't, Weren't you super blunt there? Because didn't, originally that record was a mess, wasn't it? Oh, that, well, that's another story. Yeah. Yeah, but- but, but anyway, so blessings so, like all around, like how things happen in our business, and you know, like the those break moments, like on a basketball game or whatever, when you get the ball all of a sudden and you take a crazy shot and you fucking make it, and you, and you just again you believe and you persevere. So, um, so with Jake Owen, it was like I fucking this reminds me of when I recorded Mary because of the authenticity. And I love this. I love this guy. I love this sound. I love what this is, this authenticity thing. So then I started to listen to country music from a different viewpoint. And I thought, I want to try. I'm going to try. So I was fortunate in that some of the studio musicians in town would come in here and play on these first iteration country records that I made um, which were terrible. I made terrible country records. I made them with the wrong artist. I didn't understand the the 615 or the culture or whatever, but I did what very few people from LA do. I came here, I immersed myself in it. I took the punches, I crawled through it. And little by little, that drawbridge is lowering it, is lowering and I'm finding my way in on a couple of really promising country projects. And and I tell you the truth, Zach. Like coming from you know, like I was trained by Bill Conti. I'm a. I just did the, the last album I did is Lang Lang's 
classical versions of Disney songs. Like, I know my way around Shostakovich and Gershwin and Gregorian chant and Antonio Carlos Jobim. And like, I'm a musician and all 12 notes are active at all times in my musical world. But country is, that's not what it's about. So to learn how to apply the, the breaks and to leave the spaces and to frame songs in a way that shit shows through without the harmonic excess um, was something that was very hard for me to really digest. And I finally, I got there. Yeah. Do you feel like, because you've worked with the biggest stars in the world in like the it city to work with those stars, I would almost imagine when you come in Nashville, is it under-stimulating or, or... Not at all. Not at all. Because of the, first of all, the respect that I have when I think about guys like Dan Huff or Joey Moy, like these these guys are like da Vinci's of what they do. Yeah. And part of the deal with, with um, country records and country record making really goes back to the stuff I did in the 70s when I was a kid. <clears throat> I started making records since 1972. I'm, you know, God help me. Uh, but the, the catching it live in the room and so you've got, you've got like great artists and painters like you have Ilya Toshinsky or Jerry Rowe or Near Z or Mark Hill or Paul Franklin. These guys are in the room and they're vibing. They've played on a ton of fucking country hits. They know where to leave the spaces, but yet somebody plays like a, a certain weird note on a in between the takes on E minor seven and go, I got an idea. Let's do that. Like so you're 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 firing your synapses are firing based on live music happening in the room. So there's a lot of improv which is very stimulating and very fun. And so the question is, how can I frame the song and capture the artist and get myself off harmonically knowing that I'm using seven notes, not 12? Right. And, and, um, and, and, and somehow, you know, touch the muse that got me here in the first place and honor my muse with music that touches my heart in this other genre. So it's, it's really been... I, I, you know, you as a musician, you know what I'm talking about. A lot of the people don't, but it's been a, um, a, a, a how do I say it? Like a, a um, epiphany kind of process over five years, and uh, you know, and, and in country, it's still like there's the star artist, Chris Stapleton star artist, you know, incredible singer, believability. The songs are kind of like the fuel. They're the jet fuel, but the plane is him. Right. You don't buy a ticket to the fuel. Yeah. You buy a ticket to the plane. Yeah. And so getting in, you know, looking at things through that lens, by, while at the same time comprehending TikTok and country radio and the speed bumps and the, you know, death traps all around what we do, which fundamentally starts with believing in something. Um, you know, it's it's the NFL, man. This shit is complex. And and yet the joy of a fan hearing a song that changes their life or makes a baby or makes it brings a tear, like that's still really, really, really important. What do you tell Paul Franklin when you're in the studio with him? How how do you produce him? Or do you? Do you just give him the chart and you just say, no, Paul, no, 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 he no, knows no, what no. to do? So he has a number chart. Yeah. I can do number charts and I can think in terms of that because I had a really good you know music professor when I was in high school. But um, with Paul Franklin, who who is like kind of my spirit animal in Nashville. What does that mean? Because, like you, well, you just no, speak like, the same well, language? Paul, Mar Paul Franklin can can talk about Wes Montgomery and McCoy Tyner 
and Gregorian chant all day long. He knows everything. Yeah. So, and he's playing the instrument, the pedal steel, which is the torture chamber of stringed instruments where you're using toes, knees, hand, you know, Intonation, it's, it's, it's everything. a torture chamber, like, yeah. you know, and, and he's a, and he is a um, Mozart of the, of the pedal steel. So with him, we, this is how we do it. So first off, like I'll play, I'll play the record down. He, he'll catch a song. He'll be following the number chart and then let's go freestyle. Just play whatever you hear. A couple of those. Then from what he's playing, it'll be like, oh, that's cool right there, but let's change this note. What, what's your top note? Your top note has to be this. Take this note out, put the seventh in there, change the octave. And so then we start to work and revise it. And, and um, he has told me, like, sometimes we double track it, which is fun. He says that, you know, that's not how anybody else works in town. I would believe that. I believe most people would just say, Paul, give me what you got. Yeah. Okay, that's great. We're moving on. Yeah, but um, at the end, what function he plays in in my country records is he is the strings. He's playing an arranged part, sometimes improvised. So we have a combination of specific part in, you know, bar seven to bar eight leading into the chorus, specific, you know, uh, voice leading going up or whatever. But then other parts are just freestyle country music played by the, you know, the grandmaster of it. Um, so it's a joy. And he's all over Tony Evans Jr.'s music, which uh, I want to talk about. So speaking of Tony Evans Jr., so how, first of all, how'd you even find him? Okay, so let, let's let's break that down. So um, I still work with, uh, and in a robust way, Keisha Cole. So Keisha Cole is an R&B singer who has had seven number one records at R&B. She never really crossed over internationally. She had a few pop looks, uh, one with Sean Paul, uh, Puffy, uh, Missy Elliott, where she her voice was on big hit records. She's extremely well known in urban culture, and she still has uh, maintains like one of the biggest um, uh, verses episodes of all time was her and Ashanti. She still has five million active followers. We just finished making a biopic for Lifetime where Keisha Cole is portraying herself, her life story, and there's a guy playing Ron Fair, which is hilarious. Who'd you get to play? Oh, Ron I, Fair? I, I mean, I didn't make the Lifetime. You know, hired the director. We have a brand new yeah. first-time director, D'Angelo Proctor, who's amazing. This is sort of this idea came together on a whim, didn't it? It was a drunken night. It was yeah. a drunken night, yeah. and you said, "What if we made Red this?" Wino, she said it. Hey, yeah. I want to make a biopic, and so we we pitched it all around, and then it came back to us. And then she kind of um, uh, threw the grenade and said she wanted to play herself, which actually took place. And she's portraying herself. It's coming out in June. And you weren't offered to play yourself, Ron? Well, they have the young and handsome Ron Fair. In the Who'd movie. they get? It's an actor. You know, they got I, I don't actually know his name, and I wasn't there when, when they shot it. But um, I, what I'm told is that he saw me on behind the scenes type stuff and, you know, kind of copied my mannerisms or whatever. But he looks suitably like a Jewish guy with glasses. Let's yeah. put it that way. A little skinnier, a little more handsome than me. So that, that's always good. Um, but anyway, Keisha called me out of the blue. We're, you know, we're working on music. We're, her proposition is fantastic right now. We're working on music. She calls me out of the blue. She goes, man, I saw this, this guy. He's so fine. He's so beautiful. This man, he's down there in Nashville. You know, I might want to check it out. I saw him on Shade Room. So a lot of your listeners... Um, and and country Nashville type people might not know what Shade Room is. Yeah, so I don't then, really know what it okay, is. Okay, so good. I'll tell you. So Shade Room is a website. It is the epicenter of urban culture. Um, it's a gossip site. It's a culture site. But it will tell you everything from like which NFL player got a new Tesla 
to Cardi B's nail salon artist and her, like it's all like pop culture. Who's having a baby with so-and-so? Who's getting divorced? It's pop culture from urban America, um, but it's extraordinarily powerful and huge. So Shade Room is really important. You know, if you're if you're looking, um, if you're on the internet and you want to f- find out what the latest cool stuff is from SZA's dating so and so, what you know, whatever it is, right? And it's a non. It's kind of like um, what's that show? Uh, third, third, you know, the TV show uh, with all the Hollywood gossip, Thirty Mile or what? I forget the name of the damn show. You know what it is? Um, the uh, it's like it's an like an Entertainment Tonight format. Um, I forget the name of the show. I can't th- I can't. So they follow celebrities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not TMZ. Yeah, TMZ. T- oh, 30 TMZ. miles on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. TMZ. Sorry. It's been a minute. Is that what TMZ stands for? Yeah. Oh, my God. I've never known so that. 30 miles zone. 30 miles. Oh, my. Oh, that makes so, Hollywood. That makes so much sense. Hollywood and LA. TMZ. Okay. Yeah. You learned so much here with Ron. So, okay. So she calls you and she, so she says, calls me and she yeah. says, there's this guy. This is of several years ago, actually, like really three years ago or maybe three and a half. And I look at him, I, so I, she refers me to the links to the shade room. So I go off shade room and then I move on to Instagram and not so much TikTok um, at the time. And I call her back and I go, yeah. I mean, I was kind of like her wingman sort of. I was like, yeah, the guy's, he's beautiful looking. He has an incredible voice. I don't know really what it means because I don't want to be glomming on to talent and making representations and promises that I can't fulfill. I'm not a guy in country music. Like, this is three years back. And so, but I'd love to meet him. Yeah. So, you know, I have my self-deprecating, putting myself down, self-doubt, like all the great things that Nashville has accentuated in my life. And um, so Tony and Tony ends up coming up from Atlanta and we sit together. And as a, this is like, like three years ago, he's a guy who wants to produce, write, uh, play. He wants to do everything. And I, that's honorable. I get that. I'm certainly not going to be the person who says, you can't do that. That's an artist has to come upon that realization themselves. I'm not the music police. I'm not a music professor. I'm not a cop. I'm a, I'm a kindred spirit to the creative process. So I would never say, you know, you maybe don't want to play guitar on your own record. Like that ain't my place. And it's, and it's a terrible thing to hear when you're a young artist too. It's a criticism that's not, it's not productive. So I just thought, this is a wonderful guy. He's a wild stallion, and you can't put the saddle on the wild stallion yet. So um, time passes, time passes, time passes. I know we're jumping around here, Zach, but you'll figure it out. Yeah, yeah. So by then, I had already done 500 live streams in, during 2020 for Broken Bow in this room right here. I did 250 uh, four-songs live sets to 250 programmers, we did a one-to-one radio tour with LV Shane and broke his song, My Boy, from zero to number one out of this studio. And in in that time, I... On my camera and on my microphone, I had Chase Rice and and Dustin Lynch and Lainey Wilson and uh, Jimmy Allen and Ray Lynn and, you know, so many people came through here and I and I every time I cut a country record or did a song, whatever I was recording it or filming it or live streaming it or whatever, it was like I got that feeling like this is cool shit. These people are cool. They're authentic characters, and 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 the realness. I I started to understand it more, 
And uh, so it was like, I can do this. I, it wasn't what I came here for. Because I was also doing my other life, Keisha Cole, Lang Lang, you know, other th television right. shows, music supervision for a movie about Jimmy Rosselli, Frank Sinatra's nemesis. Like I'm all over the place. Uh, my Little Pony, I was just, you know, feeding the family, doing music projects. And um, having come from this exalted career of, you know, president of AM, chairman of Geffen, head of Virgin, you know, but the ball moves. The ball moves. This is a truism that I learned from Jimmy Iving. The ball moves. So you move with the ball or you're, you're not playing. So what else am I about to blow because of my neuroses? And it was, so I'm searching all files, searching all files, or matching file, found Tony Evans Jr. Shit, maybe I'm going to blow that too. I better check in with him. <laughs> so, because it had been like a year and a half since yeah. the first meeting. So I call him back and, and it just so happens that Tony Evans Jr. is connected to a manager who I'm now partners with, Mike Dixon, who is a man that I did business with when I was at Interscope. We had signed artists together. We signed Butterfly Boucher together. We made records together. We had a great fondness for each other. We're pals. Right. So here's Mike Dixon, who I like completely. And by the way, he has some artists up here that we did some green screen filming with. And um, we're buddies. Like, Mike Dixon, you're kidding me. So old Mike Dixon. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes over. I thought we did a meeting at my house. This is uh, January of 2022. And um and Tony walks in and hey man, how you doing? Yeah, good to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, it's been about a year, year and a half. Yeah, it has been. Oh, yeah, cool. What what you know, what you got, man? So we had some cardboard pizza at the table with the kids and then went into the man cave in my house and he takes out his guitar, his tailor. And he says, yeah, I got a new writing partner. I got a whole new bag of songs. I said, well, let me hear some of them. So he starts to play this song, 17, you and me, we had it figured out. And he's telling the story of, of, a, of an innocent love where all the plans are made. The house, the lake, uh, you know, the dog naming, the, like everything is set up in the hopes and dreams of this young love including the children. But the children never happen because the young love disintegrates. And the song is called The Kids We Never Had. And well, if we had them, it would have been grandpa's smile and mom's blonde hair and the curl in, in the lip and the gleam in the eye, but we didn't have them. So it is the most profound country lyric and a way of dealing with this topic of hopes and dreams disintegrating by virtue of the kids we never had. So he plays the song and I said, as I've been trained to do and believe in, play it again. So we're one song in, in the, in the man cave. He plays it again. I said, hey, Stephanie, who's in the kitchen? I'm in the kitchen with Rocky. Come in here. She comes in. Stephanie is was signed to RCA. She made three albums of Wild Orchid. She was Fergie's best friend. She's my wife. She's a badass singer in her own right. She sounds like Anita Baker. She's a fucking incredible musician and an angel and knows everything. So she comes in, Rocky, my nine-year-old at the time. I say, hey, Tony, play Kids We Never Had Again. He plays a song. I turn over, turn, turn around. Stephanie's crying. <laughs> She's crying listening to this story about the love that doesn't happen, the, the, about the the. the the, the, the loss of things that never happened. Now, Tony didn't realize, of course, that for couples who can't conceive, 
that, uh, or try and try and try in vitro and the whole story that, that that song has a double-edged sword. He's a 24-year-old guy. He wasn't thinking about that. But kids we never had of the, you know, the unfulfilled promises is such a big idea. So then he plays another song. So my wife comes in, she cries, she leaves the room. Um, and he plays a song called Need Somebody, which is every bit as good as I Just Called to Say I Love You by Stevie Wonder. It's a, you know, just call on the phone and you're not alone. And you're, you know, you're going to need somebody. And it's just, his changes are like his finger picking, like Paul McCartney playing Blackbird, intricate, like R&B finger picking. But he's singing in this sort of Glen Campbell retro thing. And then he plays uh, another uh, song called Georgia. If you're ever in Georgia, um, look me up. A song about Georgia as a metaphor for like what can be. Um, it's like four, he played four songs. And it was like, play him again, play him again. And it was like, okay, shit. Something must have told me to call this guy after this gap in time. And it was like, I'm in. What do we do? Mike, what do we do? How do we figure this out? So we figured it out. We've cut four songs. We made a deal with The Orchard. The first song is coming out next Friday, Mar um, March 3rd. And um, EP on, on um, no, February 3rd. February 3rd, first song, Need Somebody. March 10th, EP. Uh, in the meantime, tomorrow, Tony Evans Jr. is doing a feature story with the Tennessean that Marcus Dowling is writing. And I'm excited about that. Um, CMT.com picked up on this viral cover that he did. He did a little cover of a Luke Combs tune. And um, it's over three and a half million now on TikTok. And uh, so we have a Nashville showcase March 9th. We have an Atlanta showcase March 13th. And we're also performing on the Tamron Hall show on March 16th. Because I had a hunch that kids we never had and like this guy who bridges shade room with country music that this is a this is a new thing be that some of his contemporaries in in country don't cross into the urban culture in that same way so um i pitched it to tamron hall they said yes they're going to pick the song between kids we never had and need somebody what they whatever the theme is of the day so his his television debut will be march 16th on the tamron hall show um his agent is the same fellow who signed Kane Brown, Braden Roundtree, who knows his way around, you know, growing an act like this. And um, off we go. Like the, the the start of, you know, the start of a real, a real shot at stardom for him. You know, some of the record companies have called me now and they see the TikTok. He was always a badass. He was always an Adonis. He was always a star. He was a great songwriter. He, but you know, the thing is, when we when we're in the in what we do, like we recognize talent, we sign talent, we believe in talent, and um, but it's oftentimes doesn't come at the beginning in the form that it ends up in. So there's a growth process, kind of like guys who scout athletes. They know that that high school pitcher in the two years before he gets ready for the pros is going to turn out to be great, Sandy Koufax, right? Because the signs are there. So we're like gardeners or landscapers because we're going to plant this shit, put it in the ground, put it in the sunlight, water and fertilize it and be patient and let it grow. The record industry doesn't work that way anymore. The record industry wants instant mitigation of their financial risk and they think that TikTok is the way to get that by because of the numbers that 
that counting anything spits out. Oh, well, this has 3 million, so it must be good because otherwise we wouldn't have that number. So sometimes that's right, and sometimes it's not right. Um, in Tony Evans Jr.'s case, he is a profoundly gifted digital self-marketer. He knows how to manipulate. He knows how to post. He knows the timing. He f- can smell it. He, it's in his teeth, but he's also a beautiful man and person and wonderful you know, artist uh, doing his own unique thing. So what, what will be fun to see, Zach, is, is uh, when his own music comes out, what kind of reaction that'll generate. Yeah, right. Maybe it's the Luke Combs tune. Maybe it's the American Idol thing. The song is so familiar. Everybody loves the song. So they it, it conflates to the artist. Um, we'll see. And if and by the way, if Tony's first EP, it's his music, it's his thing. You know, we've got, like I said, Paul Franklin and and the guys on it. Tony's playing guitar on everything. Um, there'll be more songs. The songs are the fuel. The plane is the artist. So there'll be more and more and more songs. And eventually we'll be ready to look at it through the lens of, is this going to connect on country radio? You have to get there. But if you try and speed through the process, you get the speeding ticket. Right. What's it like working with Mike Dixon, who's kind of like the industry's best kept secret? I call him the international man of mystery. He's like Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike Dixon is a deeply connected, wonderful man who... You know, he's got so much experience internationally and, and uh, you know, presenting artists, uh, getting artists signed, working with artists, developing them, songwriters. So, um, you know, it's wonderful to be on the same side with him in, in the Tony Evans story. It's a blast. Yeah. And there's two other fellows. His dad keeps a hand on. His dad was a former singer. And Tony Evans Sr. is a stabilizing force in our in our team approach. And Carl Washington Jr., who is an esteemed Atlanta-based lawyer. Tony started this when he was 10 years old. He was in production deals. He was singing hip-hop. Nobody knew what to do with him. Um, and he was an incredible kid. And it was himself who said, you know, I want to do country. He was listening to Brad Paisley and, and George Strait. And, you know, he chose that path for himself. Yeah, fair enough. There's something I'm trying to understand that I've heard you say, which is when you were learning, when you were getting your musical chops in high school, <coughs> and maybe even beyond that, you were able to write music, but you couldn't play music. Or you no, I could always time. play. No, you, you always play, but you couldn't read. No, I was a good, you know, like I'm the guy at the party you want because if it's like, hey, do you know, be, be which, be bothered and bewildered and be, yeah. I can play that. Yeah. You know, I can pl- play it pretty well and, and can play it in B flat too. So I had this superpower where I could leap to the piano and do every damn two, five, one, and secondary dominant. And, you know, can I play like Oscar Peterson? No. But, uh, but I can, if there's a singer, it fills the room. The thing with the, with the scoring, I started to experiment with string writing um, really, you know, probably 20 years ago. And I could write the notes down. Uh, I could notate a full, like, orchestral score, the violins will do this, the violas will do that. And, you know, and I had many, many big hits that had prominent string parts, like, like Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas or Be Without You by Mary, like this Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton, really prominent string arranging. But if you put that music in front of me, I cannot read it. What does that mean, though? Like, you can't play it on violin? Yeah, I can't, or, no, I can't play it on anything. You can't play it on anything. But I does can't that read music? But, but with enough it. time, could you figure it out? Yes. Yeah. If I sit there you, and go, you, you can't sight every read good it. boy does fine. Fourth finger on F, second finger on D, 
I cannot read music for my life, but I can write it. And it's pretty evolved. Like I can really write complicated stuff, you know, and orchestrate. And when you're writing, do you, are you still, because I, I, when I'm writing, I'll still sometimes be like, you know, every good boy. Yeah, of course. Deserves, well, no, or it's, now it's, you it's, sort of just, it's, it's, it's a little bit second nature, but yeah. I have to be careful. And then, you know, when you're writing for other instruments, like viola is in the tenor clef. Yeah. You know, it's not the same. A bass clef, like the, the, there's some notation mishigas, but, um, but yeah, like, so if it, it's something that gave me a lot of hangups, like not being able to read music on a session, um, you know, but here, this number charts. So it, where it really gets interesting, I did Runaway June's uh, Christmas EP, and it's pretty good. Um, and when you're doing a song like Let It Snow, you can't really do a number chart of that. Because it would be like three minor seven flat five six yeah thirteen sharp eleven. So did you just write the chords or what? No, you, I you, just said to Ilya, just take it home and learn it, and come back with it tomorrow. Yeah, he came back and killed it. Yeah, you know it doesn't lend itself to extended harmony chord changes, um, but um, you know that's something in 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 the way that I was trained, like what we would do a rhythm chart in, in LA or something. You would just say the name of the chord and right. have those variations, and people would just know what that is. But I love the story that you have this mentor who's Bill Conti, and was he Bill Conti when you met him, or was he just a, a sort of rising? No, he was, no, he was rising. He, so Bill Conti has an amazing story, um, and I love him so desperately. And I and there's a fantastic happy ending to this. Um, I was working. This is going back to. Uh, Probably um, 1974 or five. There was a my I had a buddy in high school, Joe Klein, who was really an evolved radio guy. Like he knew in, in those days, it was. I mean, it's so long ago, but it was a, there was something called Boss Radio. It was a thirty uh, playlist of thirty songs, top thirty. There was a guy named Bill Drake who had a chain of radio stations all through the West Coast. And my friend Joe was like a savant. And so at age 16, he was working with Bill Drake. He knew the jocks. He knew the format. He knew the charts. Like he, he was our teacher. He was amongst our group of guys. Like Joe Klein was the guy who taught us all, all of this stuff. And, you know, particularly from the point of view of radio and Top 40 Radio and how it all worked. So at one point, his dad uh, uh, allocated some money and Joe ended up, in a partnership with a recording studio um, with a jazz guy, John LaSalle, and a dent at a former dentist's office on Pico Boulevard and and uh, and La Cienega. And it was called Hollywood Spectrum. Hollywood Spectrum was nowhere near Hollywood. Right. <laughs> it was, but it was called Hollywood Spectrum. And that was a little studio that had at first it started as a mono voiceover studio with with a full track quarter inch mono, and then it was uh, a quarter inch stereo, then it was half-inch three-track, then it was half-inch four-track, then it was one-inch um, four-track, then it was one-inch eight-track, then it was two-inch eight-track, then it was two-inch 16-track, then it was three-inch uh, 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 three 32-track. Like, I went through every permutation of multi-track evolution as the guy who answered the phone and swept the floors, and that led to setting up microphones and engineering, and I became a recording engineer probably, you know, but 16, 17 years old. So that if a, ba a little band came in and they could book four hours on a Sunday, he'd be like, Ron, you can handle this, you know, uh, guitar, bass, and drums. So it was like, you know, 
in our lingo is SM57s. And, you know, if we had a mic that had a Phantom Power, it was yeah. like a big deal. How much were you getting paid? Five bucks an hour. Five that, bucks an hour. If yeah. that. Um, yeah. And answering the phone and getting the sandwiches and literally cleaning the toilets and locking up. And and so then we would steal hours. And, you know, I would do stuff with Steve Barton, who ended up in Translator and had hits. Um, and And really galvanized my my young brain because I was taking the music piece, putting it with the technology piece and, and recording. So in walks the very young and very handsome and suave Bill Conti. This is a fun interview. This is like, we're really under the hood here. Um, Bill Conti walks in with a, his project was like some kind of like, the, like an industrial film for a specific company that was making some kind of part and they needed to, so he was doing an original score for an industrial film. And his configuration was, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember, three ARP Odysseys and three celli, three cellos. And that was the band for that particular, what he had written. And he, so we, we, uh, we record the stuff and Bill, he just says, you know, hey, what are you doing? You know, let's go get a Coke. I don't, I don't even remember, but I went to his house and he had Afghans and a Corvair Monza and two little girls and a beautiful wife and a studio in the backyard on Citrus Avenue. And he was a young film composer. Now, in his life story, he had gone to Italy. He was a pop music conductor and arranger and cut a lot of Italian pop records. He went to Juilliard on a bassoon scholarship. Mm. He chose bassoon because nobody wanted to play bassoon, but the bassoon is seated in the middle of the orchestra. So you can hear every part if you're playing bassoon. And most of the time, unless it's a heavy bassoon piece, you're not doing that much. Right. You're just listening to the voicings. And he was at night, he was a burning jazz piano player at piano bars like Jilly's, like literally at like Oscar Peterson level, swinging his balls off, playing the jazz stuff that I love that I could never hope to play. You know, it was in my heart, but I had two damn anvils. But he could swing his balls off and he was kind of an Andre Previn type character and dashing and just incredible. Um, and he took me under his wing. So for a, for, happily for me, so for a probably a couple Wait, of just years. to recap. So basically you're working at the studio. He comes in. He's a client. He's a client. And, and then he, you and just make this, you, you make this connection then there. He sees he you working me. and he goes, this guy's got it. And that, it, that that's it basically. He, it's that simple. He, he adopted me. Yeah. And so I'm at his house. I'm part of his family. And, um, and then this is an this is probably part two because it's, I'm probably ready to tell the story. You can't make this up, and I'll prove it to you. Um, so, so yeah, we did a few more like student films and and industrial films and like a, a, a TV movie called Smash Up on Interstate Five. And then along came Rocky. So Rocky was a very humble little film. There was a guy floating around Hollywood that had a script, Sylvester Stallone. He only would do this. People loved the script, but they didn't want him to play the part. He he would only do the deal for the script if he could play the part. Erwin um, Winkler and Robert Chardoff believed in him. They gave him a chance with a tiny little budget. Uh, John Avildsen directed it, and they hired the young and fabulous Bill Conti to write the score. And um, Bill, like we always did, it was like, hey, Ron, okay, next Thursday at noon, we're at TTG. He's, I'm his assistant. I carry his briefcase. You didn't overthink get, it. It was, yeah, yeah like, whatever. At noon, we're going to TTG, which was on McCadden in Hollywood. And it was like a scoring room 
all, you know, like a room enough for like 45 pieces. I think it was 45 pieces. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, for those people who are in the weeds, it was Dennis Budimir on guitar and Steve Schaefer on drums and probably um, uh, uh, the bass player, I can't, it'll come to me, it wasn't Chuck Rainey, but the, some of the like luminary session guys, Gene Cipriani, you know, uh, amazing like guy, guys that were like heroes that were in the Hollywood orchestra situation. So we go in and we set up the orchestra. Um, it's a three-hour session. You know, we're going to cut, there's like, I don't know, 20 cues for, for Rocky, M1, M2, M3, M4, all the music cues. The, the uh, music was recorded on three-stripe mag film. So what that is, is a sprocketed uh, recording medium like movie film has sprockets that go through the projector like in those days like 35 millimeter film basically but it's audio and it has it's called three stripe and it has three um uh magnetic strips where audio gets recorded so it's literally like a projector threaded with sprockets and that's our recording medium and the studio only had a few pan pots so things were either like left center or right you know that was it very primitive Beautiful sounding, though, and all the great old mics. So the entire Rocky session goes down in three hours, including there was a song called You Take My Heart Away by uh, um, uh, two singers that they had found. There was like, you know, the song on the radio in the movie, maybe as a single, Nelson Pigford and Dieta Little, kind of R&B song, You Take My Heart Away theme from the movie turned into an R&B song. Uh, Carol Connors wrote the lyrics. And... That was the first engineering credit I ever had on a record on United Artists um, that Bill got me. And so the entire thing. So, you know, I'm there like, Bill's like, now remember, tell the engineer, the engineer's name was Ami Hadani. He says, tell the engineer that at bar 45, turn on the harp mics for the gliss because you yeah. don't want the harp mics on through the whole piece because it's going to blow the trumpet sound. Right. So there's live cues, recording cues, like turn this mic on, turn this mic off based on bar number. So I'm following the score, giving cues to the engineer, Bill's conducting. And, you know, we get through the, the date like that. And then there was, uh, you know, I'm his assistant. So then there was a, a, a thing, he says, Ron, let me show you this. There's a synthesizer part in, um, is this too detailed? No, I'm liking this. Okay, well, no, I, I don't you, know if your listeners are going to, but... Um, no, 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 keep going, keep going. Be, that'll be up to you. How are we doing on time, though? Are we okay on time? 50, all right, great, great, we're great. You have another one to, to go to, so fine. No. I got nothing. Do you have a little extra time if we push? Let's push. Okay, so... At least another 50. There hasn't been an interview with me like this, really. In, no, no, maybe, no, I'm loving this. Maybe you, ever. You have to keep going. You got to so, keep going. So, uh, so, for all the music production geeks out there, so... Bill, we had the three-stripe um, uh, sprocketed mag film that the, the score is on. And, of course, you know, the big... We, so we did the Q version of Gonna Fly Now. But then we did the record version, which yeah. is a different arrangement. Why chart. is that the right song for that movie? It actually... It's, it's the genius it, of it. But it shouldn't be, right? It, it is because we know it is, but it it seems like it shouldn't be. But this, is my, this was my first... Uh, my first time in my life when all of those hopes and dreams that are getting to something like that where I, where I was next to the plutonium yeah. was rocky. Okay, I was next to it. And do you and think, I'll, do you ever think how crazy it is how many people have 
this kind of like connection to that song and that music in the movie. And you go, I was in the fucking room. Like I, I, was, I was in the room, but was I literally there. But it's, you know, I, I, it's just the wind beneath my wings to this day. And my fourth child is named Rocky. And um, anyway, so, so Bill says, you know, like I want to have a, a cascading synth part rising in octaves. Like, oh, ah, ah, four octaves played on the ARP Odyssey, right? The first iteration of like the, like a cool, retro uh, synthesizer but we're, we have this three stripe mag film thing the only way to overdub is you gotta dump the whole thing to another so you're gonna go down a generation right right there's only so many times you can do that before you fuck up the fidelity so Bill says I'm gonna record it while I'm gonna play it like play it back and I'll play it we're gonna record it on this quarter inch machine and we're gonna freewheel it in into the final transfer so what do you what, what's that he said watch so he records the synth part. He's playing along. So the the, the groove is, you know, bum, 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 bum. So the tempo is like that. And he hits the key. Oh, ah, ah, and then the octave up. So it's like a four-bar deal. And that's recorded in mono on a separate machine. So how do we sync them? He goes, I'll show you. So you mark, you mark the, the, the tape head with a crayon. At the middle of the tape head is where the, the, the tape head reads the magnetic information on the audio, right? At that point of the middle, that's where the, it reads it. So, so go, go to the start of the synth part. So uh, has an attack. So you're going back and forth, rip, 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 and, and mark where that sound actually is on the physical tape. Now backwind it a little bit and press the play button on beat four. So one, two, three, press. Uh, and it comes in in time or it doesn't if you press the button in the right You're place. triggering it. Yeah, so yeah. it's human error. Plus, the machine sucks. isn't in sync. So <laughs> as the piece is playing the four-bar section, it's getting further out because it's not synced to the sprocketed mag tape, right? So it's like they're running wild with each other, somehow miraculously lining up for that one part. So after a matter of trial and error uh, of, okay, like, and then there's the amount of time it takes for the capstan, which is the, the little thing spinning around like that, and the pinch roller, which closes it against the capstan to then move the tape reel. If you offset it a little bit and keep offsetting it and then kind of figure out that what is the consistent uh, uh, um, offset if I press it on beat four and I'm pretty damn sure I'm on beat four and I'm not early or not late, how long does it take the machine to engage to put that fucking sound on the downbeat? Right. And so five, 10 minutes, we do it. I press the fucking button and put that synth part. That's, that's what it is. On that record. Yeah. So of course I'm learning everything and then I hear it on the radio and it's like, there's that part. And it was like, that's the first time in my life when my humanity touched a piece of music like that. But here's the best part. It's just two, I want to give two more endings to Bill Conti and then, and then we can move on. I want to talk about Dave's Highway. So uh, there I am, I'm 22, high as a kite, trying to make shitty jazz fusion records. I had a tax shelter record company called Baby Grand. It's a whole other story, I yeah. don't believe. This changed your life, this moment right here. Yeah. But Bill walks in. So we were at a studio called El Dorado, which is now a hotel. 
in, across from the Capitol Tower. 1717, no. Yeah, I think it was 1717 Vine. And uh, right next to the Hollywood Palace. So I'm in there and I've got like, we're all crazy high, trying to make like bad Chick Corea kind of music. We were jazz fusion freaks. It was, in those days, it was like Chick Corea, Al Demiola, um, you know, Stanley Clark. We idolized those guys and we were trying to emulate them, me and my little band of Jewish guys from the Valley trying to play jazz fusion. And I was the worst guy on, on, on Fender Rhodes, but I'm the guy who could organize the studio, get the gigs, get the money, get the equipment, get the microphones working. Like I was the guy who could make it all happen, but the worst musician. And um, so Bill walks in, he knew I was up there and he's got this thing under his arm. It's wrapped in brown paper in front of my, you know, a drummer, bass player and, and guitar player and um, a sax player. And he rips off the brown paper and he hands me a gold record for Rocky in front of my band. And he says, so I, of course I had no expectation of that ever happening. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like, hey man, if the record goes gold, can you give me a play? Like I had no clue, none. Right. And I'd only seen gold records in hallways of meetings that I was, you know, lucky enough to get into when in I was- In lobbies of uh, yeah, recording when I, studios. Yeah, when I was a teenager, you know, my sister <laughs> auditioned for Columbia Records and I saw the lobby of Columbia Records and, 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 and you know, dropped dead with envy. So, Joking, uh, because if you walk into this studio right now, you will see the gold <laughs> records, a plethora of them it's lined up on the it's walls. A it's a lifetime. But he walks in with he, the gold record. With my name on it. Yeah. And that's one of the ones that's hanging out there. I got to see on the way out. Yeah. And, um, and he says to me, Ron, you're, you're like a pretty bad piano player, <laughs> like a half-ass piano player. You're a half-ass recording engineer. You're a half-ass arranger. None of that shit is good. But if you put it all together, you're going to be a great producer. Just don't do any of that stuff. Yeah. Like delegate it. And what could have been an insult was a man putting me on my life path. Uh, and starting really galvanizing me as a person. Why don't you say something like that to Tony Evans Jr.? Because in a way, you were saying that he was doing all these things and you felt like it wasn't your space to come in. I wasn't his mentor. And Bill was your mentor. That was yeah, the difference. I didn't have that the, was the I didn't relationship have the, difference. I didn't have the, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. I wanted, I wanted to be cool with the artist and you don't start off by hurting somebody's feelings and yeah. get cool. But were your feelings hurt when Bill said that or no, did it make a lot of sense? Because I idolized him. Yeah. And I had enough personal maturity at the time to listen and realized that it wasn't a put down, that he was trying to help me, which he did. So then I became an NR guy and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, let me fast forward the movie. So right now, so many years have passed. That was, you know, obviously like I'm, I'm turning 68. Uh, I was 22. It's a long time ago. And Bill's now, you know, 80. Um, but he's sharp. So, you know, there were times when we talked, times when we didn't talk decades that went by, things that happened, there was never anything wrong ever, but the ball moves. So I just recently got hired to do, a, there's a movie that we're making right now um, with a great Hollywood uh, producer named Roger Birnbaum, which is the life story of a singer named Jimmy Rosselli. I did not know who Jimmy Rosselli was. Underneath Sinatra, 10 years younger, was Jimmy Rosselli, 
who wouldn't co- collaborate or, or work with the mob. And so he was shut out of a career. He was on the Ed Sullivan show six times. Like, it's this whole guy's made like 20 albums. I never mm. heard of him. Like, how can this be? Like, how is it possible that I've never heard of a guy this big? He was known to every Italian, every American, Italian-American. Uh, he's, so this is a movie that John Travolta wanted to make. A lot of different people wanted to make it and we're making it right now. And I just now was hired as music supervisor and I hired Bill Conti to write the original score for the, he played with Rosselli. He played piano bar with Rosselli. He knew him. And uh, so we have our great reunion at this, this many years later. And I'm channeling that. And, uh, you know, we're talking to various different actors and directors and we're almost done with the package and the movie's going to get made. We, we're, um, my, I'm going to channel, I'm going to say it. I'm going to sit next to Bill Conti at the Oscars. He's going to get nominated and he's going to go up and get an Oscar at age 80 for the, movie that I brought him. I believe it. I love, this sounds like a great movie. It fucks me up every time, man. You know what impact we can have on each other and we're all freaks to begin with because we're musicians. We're living on a different wavelength. Like, I don't know if people who aren't musicians realize that. We're on a fucking different wavelength. Starting with the fact that what we want to do is preposterous, succeed, you know, against how many, like, look at, just look at the next women of country this year. 17 of them are blonde. How do they get up in the morning and think, I'm going to be the next woman of country when there's 16 other girls that have blonde hair next to them on the stage? And yet we do it. It's crazy. But it's, it's, it never changes. TikTok doesn't change it. AI won't change it. Nothing will change it. That that fucking spark of creation. When the little red light goes on and somebody's saying something, never will change. Man, you can't top that. You can. So let's talk a little bit about Dave's Highway and you can sequence it. Talk about Dave's Highway and then I've got one more thing that I want to talk to. We got another 10 minutes? So when I got to town, I had a little Fiat convertible. Um, the last iteration of the Fiat Spider that they made. I used to drive around Nashville and look look at all the stuff and hear Dan and Shay over and over again and think like, I could do that. And I knew uh, Brown Bannister, who was Amy Grant's original producer. Just knew him. I don't know how. But it was like, yeah, Brown. Like, I, I don't know how I knew him. And he had just taken over Lipscomb University's pop music program. So they have like an upstart pop music curriculum that doesn't really compete with Belmont because Belmont is so established and so amazing, but they have one. So there's other kids who go to Lipscomb for pop music. So Brown hired me to be a pop music professor, an adjunct professor. And I had a class which was like, um, basically the Music Universe, according to Ron Fair, a Jewish guy from LA who just got off the plane in Nashville Nashville with a bunch of kids at a Christian university who think they want to be in the music business. So like the first week of the class that was at the studio here, I held up Billboard and I said, anybody know what this is? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Nobody raised their hand. Nobody read Billboard? Nobody knew what it was that were in the pop music program. So I realized, okay, like I got to start with like, this is an agent, this is a manager, this is a copyright. One-on-one. Yeah, and it was fun. And we did, we did a lot of fun things. But in the class with these three people, two, two females and a male, 
and they walk in and they have like a certain energy, a certain thing. Now I'm an A&R guy for, you know, since 1981. Like I've, I've been an A&R guy a long time and been through a lot of discovery processes. So like I've, my radar is always on. So I say to them in the class, like, who are you? You guys look like a thing. What, what, and there's about 20 people in the class. What, what thing are you? Well, we're brothers and brother and two sisters. And you all sing together. Yeah, we've been singing together since we were three. So I noticed you got a guitar case right there. Why don't you take that out and play something for the class? He says, well, it's an electric guitar. There's no amp. I said, I don't care. So it was like an ES-335. Quiet guitar. So they start singing, and I'm thinking, well, this is the whole reason why I came to Nashville, that I would open the front door metaphorically and physically and hope that something would walk through the front door. Chris Stapleton, something. Something's going to walk through the door if I only just open it. And they start singing, and it's this genetic harmony with all the swoops and the breathing and all of the microscopic family things that come from that singing since they were three in the same room and experiencing mom and dad frustration and life frustration and everything together as siblings. And it was like, this is the fucking Everly Brothers right here. Who, you know, the Everly Brothers were a duo, but if you ever listen to their old records, it sounds like 16 guys. Yeah, They're right. so amazing. Yeah. And so, like, musicologically, I understood this is a thing. Where are you from? Jackson, Mississippi. Boom, tick that box. <laughs> you know, we don't want to be a Christian band. We want to, you know, we want to sing hit records. Our favorite artist is Taylor Swift and Casey Musgraves. Boom. So, I... And do you think everyone in the class is saying, get a room, guys? Like, kinda, come on, we're, trying, we're brother, trying to learn here. Brother and sister. And, um, and... So I asked Brown, look, I, I want to work with these kids. So at this point in time, like, as I said, I had just started doing country music. I had two very, very bad experiences in two other artist camps and two other projects that were months and thousands of dollars. I ended in utter heartbreak. And, um, but I was still, I wasn't like I was with Aaron Kinsey where I wasn't doubting myself. And I was like, I want to sign you. So, okay. So we get lawyers and I sign them, whatever that means. To, and uh, to a production deal. And I thought, this is a family band. I want to record their songs. I don't want to go into the Nashville songwriting treadmill, which is probably a mistake because of how, you know, hit records in, in country music come from, from Ashley Gorley and Hillary Lindsay and, you know, Laura Vells and the, great, the greatest writers on, of all time, Liz Rose. And it's a vocab. And I didn't really understand that at the time. I'd wanted them to do their songs. I'm thinking it's like the Allman, you don't tell the Allman brothers what song to write. Yeah, They're right. the fucking Allman brothers, yeah. right? They're the band. And that's a holy grail of itself. So, uh, and I'd worked with other sibling bands and, you know, so I just took their songs at face value and recorded them. And they were like dinky starter little family band songs. But the magic was in the harmony. And then I, um, I have a, through the what I was telling you, my work with Jake Owen, I met Jake's manager, Keith Gale. So Keith Gale became like my rabbi, which he would laugh at me calling him that, <laughs> where I would be able to say to him, look, I just, I fucked up. I said this to the so-and-so. I did this wrong. I did that wrong. I'm going to kill myself. And he would like help me. He was my friend. Call it like Nashville therapy because the, the 615 is its own, as you know, society and culture. And it's it's a, it's a it's a uh, its own universe that needs to be approached a certain way. 
correctly. So um, one day I was like, Keith, you got to stop by. I'm I'm hitting the wall. I'm I'm, re- I'm one inch away from the whiskey bottle or the gun. <laughs> okay. He comes over. He's like, well, you know, what's the matter? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm hitting the wall, like this Dave's Highway thing. I can't get no one's, no one. You know, everybody came to hear it. Randy Goodman, they all, everybody came to see what Ron Fair from LA, the guy who did Christina Aguilera and Black Eyed Peas and all that shit. And Mary J. Blythe, what has he got going? So they all came to see Dave's Highway four years ago, right? And it was not happening. So they don't say that. Hey, Ron, this is too early. Appreciate you having us out. And they just pass. They just, you know, they just walk out and you're depressed. So they don't ever pass because then they have to come back on it if they change their mind. Right. It, it just, it's just like ghost. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, Keith says, well, you know, let me hear it. Really? Like no one likes this. Poor me. So I play it for him and he goes, dude, what the fuck? Like, why wouldn't you bring that to me? I don't understand. Like, I'm your, you say I'm your rabbi and you you got this stuff cooking? It's early, but like, they're great. What the hell? Really, Keith? <laughs> so he gave me like, you know, actually like a, like a little flashlight in my face. Next thing I knew, he brought down Jake Owen. Jake Owen hears him and goes, you guys are incredible. Let's figure it out. So time passes, time passes, time passes. We keep recording. We keep working. We change drummers. We add bass players. We do songs, they collaborate with the Nashville people, they do outside songs that Keith finds them. And um, so what? what's changed? Time has passed. Then they get an agent, now they're opening for uh, Darius Rucker, and they're singing their ass off in this God-given three-part harmony that is like, you've never heard anything like this. And they're growing, and they're getting older, and they're getting more confident, and they're getting more beautiful, and more handsome, and more charming, and they're learning the 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 rules of the road of being a country artist in this town, which is there's stuff you need to learn, stuff that Lanny Wilson learned and you know Jelly Roll learned and what, to 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 make it. So last December, three two months ago, Jake's had a Christmas party, and and um and uh Dave's Highway gets so that's their last name Dave's. It's not like the name Dave with an apostrophe. Yeah. Their name is Dave's. Zachary Dave's, Delaney Dave's, and Erica Dave's. The Dave's Highway has just been, always been the name of their family van. So uh, they sang a Christmas tune, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And um, who's in the audience? Bobby Bones. Yeah. Who's, who's, who then says, what the heck? You guys are incredible. What do you have? Keith feeds him the music. The next thing we know is he puts him on the new artist feature two weeks ago, which is 250 markets two times on the weekend. It's a thousand spins on country terrestrial radio with that sound. And he's now weaving them into the iHeart's room wherever there is room. And we've now finished seven, eight new records. The best I ever did in in the genre. Um, They co-wrote or wrote all of them. It's like... Littler, new, new little big town. It's there's no vocal group, there's no sibling group. They're spectacular live performers. The songs are wonderful, and so all of a sudden, you know, Ron Fair, who was about to jump off a cliff with all this country stuff, I have two viable things that have done my heart really well. I know it's a long way to go with Tony and with um, Dave's Highway, but I'm. Starting to get a little respect, and it 
feels really good and it was very hard to come by, especially came from the musician community, the guys who, who've helped me make these records, Near Z, Jerry Rowe, Mark Hill, especially Paul Franklin, Dan Dugmore, who's amazing, played pedal steel on all the Linda Ronstadt records, Mickey Raphael, uh, uh, Willie Nelson's harmonica player, um, Ilya Toshinsky, like they're all playing on these records. Are there great players in LA and Nashville or do you think that the players in Nashville are just in a league all around? How do you rank they're, them? They're different because the players in Nashville are arranging records on the spot, on the fly, and they're so experienced in it that they they're they're doing like a human checkerboard thing, like a leave a space, take a space, leave a space, take a space, as an improv. And you know, there's a demo which is a you know which is kind of a roadmap. The guys in LA that, that are session players, like it, it pretty much doesn't exist anymore. Like the 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 producers. I mean, in movie scores, it does, and television scores. But, like, in pop music, I think, you know, producers are now playing their own guitar parts and making their own stuff up, and they're not reading charts. Right. They're not improvising. It's part of the songwriting process, you know, where the part's on a record. Um, it's not like, you know, Dan Huff calls these guys, and three hours later, they have a number one song. Yeah, it's unbelievable, yeah. right, how, how it works like that. So, uh I am super grateful. I'm grateful for you to come here and ask me these questions and let me talk. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm grateful. Um, it's all, you know, on the real. Like, that's that's how I feel. Dave's Highway. Everybody has to go check them out. They're going to be at Bobby Bones' Million Dollar Concert, which is a charity at the, at the Ryman. Ryman. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's a very, very exciting and wonderful thing. And Tony's going to be at, uh, well, we, have to, we, we might change the venue, but March 9th, we'll announce it shortly. Um, it will be his Nashville showcase, Five Tunes, and then Eddie's Attic in Atlanta on the 13th, Tamron Hall on the 16th, which I'm super excited about. And um, and we're cutting five new records. Yeah. I got one more thing I want to sure. ask you about, sure. okay? You signed the Black Eyed Peas, okay? No, I didn't actually sign or, them. Okay, you didn't sign them. I'm not the original signer. Not the original signer. Doesn't matter to my to my point okay. or my, my question. You're working with the Black Eyed Peas, and they're putting out the song, Where's the Love? Mm -hmm. They're, you know, soon to be their biggest song. I guess it's not yet. And you're trying to get them on what? The Justin Timberlake tour and the uh, Christina Aguilera tour? Right, so you're asking me, you know, you, you've done your homework, which is awesome. So the Black Eyed Peas, I'll, I'll tell you the genesis of Where's the Love. Yeah. I had just started working for Jimmy Iovine. I knew Will I Am because I played vibraphone on a record that he made yeah. through, I had a, we have a friend, Dave Pensado, you might know from Pensado's place, great recording engineer. Um, and I, um, how do you know how to hang out with the, like Will I Am, Christina Aguilera, the coolest people on the planet from the outside, at least, you know, visually, vibe, tone, everything. How do you know how to hang out with these people? Cause they see, it seems like culturally, like, like you and Will I Am, I feel like, I don't know, are you and Christina Aguilera, how do you learn how to hang out with them and be cool with them? Is it just natural? Well, First of all, if you're the record company, which I was, then they they you're have the to giver hang out of you. life. Yeah, like you're the connect to the financial. But I backing. get nervous hanging out with people like that. Um, like you know, it's, no, I mean, I'm like uh, in the band. Yeah, I'm in the band. So, uh, and I think people like that may look at me like he's cool. He's like the music professor. Yeah, you know, I, you know, what's the fifth note in C minor nine? You know, like they can ask stuff like that. So, so uh, the the peas, and uh, I'll put I'll put this on the record for you. So I knew Will I am a little bit. I got to Interscope. I was president of A and M. 
I had signed Christina. She sold 13 million records in the first year. Jimmy Iovine headhunted me and brought me in to be president of A&M. Um, Black Eyed Peas were in the building. I happen to know Will a little bit. And they were diminishing. Jimmy said, you know, he always knew who Stacey Ferguson was. It was really strange. Um, I had done, I had moonlighted on another record and had met Jimmy prior to me working for him. Um, it was a soundtrack called Hoodlum. The, the true story of the only black man to ever penetrate the mafia, Bumpy Johnson, starring Lawrence Fishburne. So there was a soundtrack. And I did a big band record with LV, who was the guy who sang Gangster's Paradise, because it was right around the time of Brian Setzer. So I was trying to do like the 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 black version of that with like a like more Duke Ellington, like a black big band with a yeah. black singer, like and uh, and it fit the movie. It was for the movie Basin Street Blues. John Clayton arranged it. Clayton Hamilton, like amazing. So um, so I got to get back on the point. So wait, so, wait, so Jimmy so, says to you. So, so so he, around that time, he called me up and said, I want to have a meeting with you. I said, Jimmy sure. did. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, cause I'm, I'm producing this record that's right. going to be on his soundtrack. Right. I, I don't, I think, I don't even remember. I think I had LV, LV was on RCA. I was at RCA. He was at Interscope. So I now have LV in the soundtrack. So there's a reason to have a meeting. So Jimmy says to me, like, who's that girl, that blonde girl? Like, who is she? Like, I want to sign that blonde girl. I said, well, you're talking about Stacey Ferguson from Wild Orchid? Stacey Ferguson is signed to RCA. Like, I work for RCA. I don't know what you mean. You want to sign her. She's not like, you can't sign her. She's signed. She's in a band. Yeah. That girl's a star. You should bring her here. Jimmy, you're not understanding. I can't bring her there. I work for RCA. She signed to RCA. Like, no, nah, no, nah, but you should really think about that. Bring She's her trying to here. hire you. I don't know what he was doing, but yeah. it was... You, it was, you're not working it, it, it was like, yeah, I, I worked yeah. at RCA and Wild Orchid was my priority and it was, you know, I had them and, and Christina. and So anyway, uh, fast forward the movie, he does hire me. Day one, he's like, get the girl from the, the group, the one I told yeah. you about the year ago. Is it true, really quickly, is it true that he hires you because there's a Rolling Stone interview with Christina Aguilera and, Chris, and in the interview, Christina says, my A&R guy... Ron Fair convinced me to sing. No, she didn't say convince me. What did she say? No, so, so let's put a pin in that, in, in, in what I was saying, and I'll jump on you. So I was in Mississauga. No, I was in Winnipeg. We were doing Christina's Christmas album. I was going on, I went on the road with her. She was doing concerts and like on a day off, we'd like, okay, we're going to, we're going to record in Cleveland tonight. We're going to record in Chicago. We're going to record in Winnipeg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're doing like Oh Holy Night and, you know, Christmas tunes in between. And um, I didn't produce a lot of the records with Christina, but I produced the Christmas album. I was an A&R guy and executive producer. But anyway, um, I'm in, I'll never forget. I was in the studio that was owned by the band Triumph. And it was yeah. all like decrepit wood. Everything was wood. So we're in the, I'm in the room and, and, and I, and the, the phone intercom rings and it's like, Ron, Jimmy Iovine's on line two. And it was like, I figured like, this is Danny. Yeah. You're Danny like, Jesus is on line three, whatever. Me. Yeah. 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 And Danny used to do that. He used to call up and say, it's Clive Davis. So, you know, it would joke. Yeah. 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 So Christina had just done Rolling Stone and in Rolling Stone, she was on the cover and she threw me under the bus. I'm in the studio with her. Yeah. She's in the booth. Jimmy's on the phone. And in the article, she says, well, I'll tell it this way. 
Jimmy calls up and says, this Ron Fair? Like, we know each other, right? Yeah, yeah, we do. Remember Bumpy Johnson, Basin Street Blues, LV? Oh, yeah, 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 I forgot about that. Um, look, it's, I'm reading Rolling Stone right here. Christina Aguilera's on the cover. She's in the booth. Like, I'm, you know, he says, it's true. It says right here, you forced her to sing Genie in a Bottle. Is that true? You forced her? How do you do that? And I, I didn't know, I was, I like, oh my God, like, I did say that. And um, of course I didn't hold it against Christina. She's a teenager, yeah. you know, like. Is that an act? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't that that intense, but was, was that an accurate description where you're like, Christina, just sing the song, come on. I, like, we don't have to put it out, but Pretty much, it. yeah. That's kind of what happened. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I'm doing my job as an NR guy. I believe in the song, it's great for her. You know, obviously it worked. It was gigantic yeah. number one record. Number but was one she album. really pushing back? Or I don't know. If you were just like, hey, Christina, probably, come on, just sing the probably. song. Probably. Yeah. Probably pushing back. Yeah. You know, I, I don't remember. So but, he's, but he says to you, can you do that for my. So, this oh. is so on, you know, the way he is wired. So he, he says, is it true that you forced her to sing that? So before I can answer, he says, I want to hire you to come here and force artists to sing number one records. And so from that phone call, which is hilarious, I became president of AM. Then I got there. Then Will I Am was there. We kind of knew each other because I played vibraphone on a record. Right. And I still have a vibraphone right there. And um Okay, now we're back on track. So yeah. now you're working with the so, P's. And and Christina, by the way. And Christina. So, so the first record I did, I'm there four weeks, and Jimmy calls me in and says, you know, hey, we got to deal with Baz Luhrmann. We're doing this Moulin Rouge thing. They want to do a cover of uh Lady, Lady, Marmalade. Lady Marmalade. Like, can you get Christina on that? It's like he was so, Jimmy's so smart that in my contract with Interscope, it said in the first page, Ron Fair is allowed to work with Christina Aguilera. It's a carve out. So the first thing I did was able to bring her into an Interscope record and still not violate, you know, the terms of the contract. And within 10 weeks, it was a giant number one record. And it yeah. was, you know, it was a, to this day, they're still writing about it. And it was just a blast. And she sounds amazing on it. So does, so does Pink. Everybody sounds great. Right. on that record and it was you know a fantastic song so so um early days of interscope and um will we have a meeting i'm i say to jimmy okay i'll take i'll take the peas on my unit on a m okay because they're like uh bridging the gap and the other album like they're starting to go down he says to me can you get that girl that i wanted before get her in the group so we didn't get her in the group. It's not like get groceries. Like there's a lot to do, but I was able to, with my relationship, you know, persuade Fergie that her next career move was to join the Black Eyed Peas. And um, we were able to do that. And in that meeting, Fergie wasn't in the group yet. So it's it's Will and and um, and uh, Taboo and Apple, just the four of us. And I was on folding chairs. We didn't have my office set up yet. And I was like, well, what are we going to do? And I said, tell you what, why don't you make a pop song? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be the record company pig mm. right now. And too fucking bad if they don't like it. I said, why don't you make a pop song like for the radio? Any artist would, they hate that. With somebody like, searching all files, searching all files, matching file found, Justin Timberlake. Make a song with him. Of course, he's the biggest thing yeah, it's a, he's yeah, yeah, literally yeah. Zeus in pop music. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, okay, here's where I get killed because they're going to tell me to fuck off because this is so trite. Yeah. 
um, Taboo says, man, that's dope. What a good idea. You know, every time Justin comes to town, like we go clubbing, we go dancing, we have a blast. Like he's our buddy. He's a drinking buddy. I said, so then like fish on the hook. So I said, great. You guys call Justin Timberlake, leave me out of it, leave his manager out of it, leave your manager out of it. Just get it done. Just, Just artist to artist, see if you can make a song for the sake of music and keep the business out of it. I was like, sure, man, no problem, dope. That was like, that was that. So Justin Timberlake writes, where is the love? People killing, people dying, you know, and sings it to Will down a phone. I mean, a lot of people don't understand how talented Will I am is he co-wrote Ordinary People with John Legend. Like, he's a badass. So so uh, Justin sings the song down the phone and, you know, what's wrong with the world, mama? Will brings in his part. Fergie joins the group. Now there's nothing but problems. Okay, nothing but problems. Jive Records. It's like, well, we're not going to clear Justin Timberlake. We're not. Yeah, an let, album coming we're out. We're not going to let gonna you. Get in the use, way. Yeah, whatever. We're not going to. People don't think that way anymore. Yeah. We're not going to let you use his name, his likeness, or whatever. You can have his voice on there because he wants it, but we're not going to let you say that to anyone. So it was like, cool. I'm thinking, this is cool because every kid is going to know he's on it, and it's cooler. This is where counterintuition appeared in my life and never was in there before. Yeah. You have intuition that you act on, but counterintuition is what wouldn't I do? Yeah. What doesn't make sense? And how do I inter- how do I in- integrate that into my thought process? So I'm thinking, hmm, they think they're punishing me and fucking my record up, but they're handing me a gift because we're not going to say his name and kids are going to think it's cool because they're going to know it's him. So then- uh, right around that time, of course, Christina is, uh, they were all, everybody was flying so high. We were r- running, running the roost. So she's going on tour with Justin Timberlake, 50 stadium dates or uh, arena dates, 50 concerts. So I called Irving Azoff and I said, and he's a, he's always been a, a pal and always supported me and, you know, God love him. And I said, I, do you have an opening act for the tour yet? He's managing Christina. Yeah. He was her manager. I brought her to, Irving. And um, she had a, a management change at the beginning and Irving ended up being a, a genius for her for many, many years. So I brought her to Irving and um, I asked who's opening on the tour. And he said, well, no one. And I said, well, can I get the Black Eyed Peas? We're releasing a single. Can I get them? They'd be cool, man. It's a cool energy. Like for Christina, Justin's a cool look. Justin's singing on the song. No one knows that. But, and he said, he, he said, uh, there's certain things about the story that I can't say, but he said, yes. And What can you say? No, I, I just, well, that'll be when, when, you, <laughs> when we drink. So, so uh, he said, yes, he permitted them to go, but he, then he called me back and he said, I got a problem. You sure you want to do this? Because it was going to cost a lot of money, like a quarter of a million dollars. And they were going to be billed. He said, there's no time to put them on the, on the signage. Yeah. Can't be, name can't be on the ticket. Can't put it on any of the advertising. None of the posters. And this is what blows my mind. You go, that's the best thing I've ever heard. Well, I didn't, yeah. I'm thinking to myself, this hide the ball shit is going to work for our favor. And, and Jimmy said to me like, you know, you can do this because he gave me the money. He said, you can do this, but if it doesn't work, you're fucking out of here. Like this is, this is what he said. It's not a family. It's a team. You score points, you're on the team. It's not a family. Don't get that out of your mind. Yeah. So uh, one of the greatest bosses of all time. So uh, 
So now this counterintuition thing, if their name's not on the ticket and not on the signs, and the ticket says, let me see the ticket. It says, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, 8 p.m. Kids are going to think that Christina's going on at 8. They're not going to want to miss anything because they paid a lot of money for this ticket and they've hassled with their mother and grandmother to get there. So if it says 8 p.m., they're going to be there at 8 p.m. And at 8 p.m., the Black Eyed Peas are going to go on. If it would have said Black Eyed Peas on the ticket, Christina Aguilera, Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, Black Eyed Peas, yeah. 8 p.m., everybody show up at 9 p.m. They would say, who the fuck is a Black Eyed Peas? So at 8 p.m., those, those venues were filled. And I told them, play where is the love last. We want to make sure everyone that can be in the audience is there to hear the song. And now the song's at radio and it's reacting at radio and it's going like, you know, 60, 40, 20, 15, 13, 10, moving all the way up the chart. Now it's a happening. Now everybody knows that it's Justin Timberlake because the story's out in the ether. And so what happens? Justin Timberlake brings them on stage in his set to play his new exciting hit with all these cool guys, the Black Eyed Peas. So they do the song twice in the same venue and the kids are hearing it twice. And then they would go from city to city to city and play it at the after parties. Every place they went, there would be an after party at a 2,000 seat club. And who would be playing? Justin Timberlake and the Black Eyed Peas up there jamming, doing this new incredible summer hit, Where Is The Love? So because their name was not on the ticket, and it just, all of the counterintuition worked. worked in our favor. And, and nobody saw why Irving Azoff's a genius. He should, he didn't get that or he, or he, or he, no, I mean, he I just wanted to be honest. Yeah. He just wanted to be honest. That Yeah. Yeah. You guys aren't going to get any bill, billing. Yeah. He was just telling me like, are you sure you want to do this run? I don't want you to get in trouble. Yeah. Like we're going to do this deal, but like, you're not going to have any of that. You sure you want to do it? Yeah. And I rolled the dice and, um, and, uh, yeah, we had a worldwide number one record and multiple Grammy nominations, and they performed it on the Grammy, on the Grammys. And I'll tell you, I'll leave you with this: the string part on the record doubles the bass line. Everybody in unison, and on the Grammy performance, if you look at it, you're going to see a live string section that are all playing violins in the shape of question marks because that was the logo of the song, Where is the Love? And I got Zeta, who makes electric violins, to make me uh, four violins, one viola, and a cello in the shape of a question mark painted white for the Grammys. And um, that's how far we took it. That's how far you got to go. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Ron Fair, we got to do a part two. We've just scratched the surface. There's, there's so much more we could have spoken about. But the point is that Ron's in Nashville now. He's been here for a minute. He's got two hot, hot acts, Tony Evans Jr., Dave's Highway. You've got to check them out. Get in early with them. Everybody else is getting in line. Bobby Bones is on board. If he's on board, you got to get on board and at least listen to the music and check it out. And we're in, a, we're in Ron's fabulous studio here. He's got a string session happening tomorrow. The guy is busier than anyone. So, Ron... We appreciate you taking the time out Thank of your you day so much to the, have us and, uh, the, and we got to do it again sometime. Thank you so much, Zach. Appreciate it. Fantastic. Thanks, All right, bye. We get it? We get it, Matt? There you go.